I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This podcast was one that was recorded for the Book Academy. The Book Academy is a book club on steroids and I set it up to help authors and avid readers to write better because the more books you read, the better you are at writing. At least that is the theory. But from this, I have had some cracking interviews and also the members of the Book Academy also interview. So you may hear a number of different voices. Enjoy. Welcome, Emma. Emma is Professor of Shakespeare Studies at Hartford College. She is a fellow librarian and a director of teaching. So it's wonderful to have you. But even more brilliant, it was through one of our members, Chris Sissons, who had the book Portable Magic in First Place and said to me, you got to read this book. As soon as someone says that, I do. And now I'm saying to members of the Book Academy, we need to read this book. So Emma, tell us about your book. Well, thanks ever so much, lady. Thanks. And thanks, Chris, for the for the recommendation. That's uh, uh, I really appreciate that. Uh, and it's great to be here and to chat with you this evening. Um, I had planned with lady that maybe I would be here for the sort of first half of the evening and then you can uh, chat about other things uh, with, without me. Um, uh, uh, so it would be great to hear questions, you know, either from having had the chance to look at the book or from the things that I uh, we, we talk about. I mean, it's it's a book about books and about, um, in some ways, precisely what Chris just uh, Chris Ryder just introduced us to, which is you know uh, the the kinds of pleasures that having a book in your hand um, that make that a different experience from uh, the experience of, of getting the content via uh, via an, aud- an audio book. So I suppose in some ways what my um, book is about is all the other things that books give us which are not necessarily the content of their words. Um, and there are lots of different ways to come at that, uh, that idea. Um, in my working life in the university that lady alluded to in the introduction we 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 have the great privilege of spending time with with rare books uh with very valuable books and with books that um uh are sort of amazing historical artifacts they might be beautifully bound or they they give us a sort of insight into 
past histories um, in the form that they take. Uh, and in Shakespeare studies, which is my field, we talk a lot about what the difference it makes to Shakespeare and to the idea of Shakespeare when his plays stop being published in little throwaway pamphlets and get published in this big hefty book that you'll hear a lot more about next year when it's 400 years old, uh, the first folio of Shakespeare, the first collected edition of Shakespeare, which came out in 1623. And that's an example of how form, the form of a book really affects its content. The folio for Shakespeare suggests this is a really serious author. This is something you should sit at your desk and read. It's not something you should just have in your pocket and kind of flick through. Uh, it's worthy of study. It's in the same kind of format, maybe as a, a legal book or an atlas or something. So just that makes it feel um, you know, more significant, more weighty. And that for me is the moment when Shakespeare stops being a playwright and an entertainment and all of those things and becomes a sort of a classic author or a, uh, a figure to revere something. And it's all inherent in that change in, in, in books. So that's in some way part of my day job, but I felt that, um, that the importance of books as objects isn't really confined or isn't even mostly found in rare books or in, in rare book libraries, but it's actually a feature of all the books uh, that we have or that we have through our hands. Um, we all pretty much know, um, you know, whether this is a nice book to handle, whether it's a bit difficult to keep open, um, you know, whether it's a bit too heavy, uh, whether it smells a bit weird. Uh, we're conscious of all these different uh, elements of the book, I think, when we're reading. And sometimes when I talk with people about my book, Portable Magic, I think one way that they have into it is to think back to the books they read as children. Where um, uh, if you're my, my kind of vintage, maybe you read sort of puffin books or their equivalent uh, as 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 children or whatever whatever children's books you had Lady often those books are available um still available they're available in new editions new formats for new for, for, for new children but if you look at those if you read them say to children or grandchildren or something or you see them in a shop they don't feel like the same book that you had and often we very much associate the feel, the feel in our hands, the, the cover, the sort of particular way that book handled to us. Uh, it's more, that's to say, than just the contents. Yeah, Ladybird books are a really, really good example. Um, uh, and that that hard, you know, hardback format and the size of them and, and so on, and that particular font as well. I mean, that's one of the reasons that those uh, spoof Ladybird books for grown-ups. If you've seen one of those, you know, the Ladybird book of the hangover and so on. It's one of the reasons they're so effective uh, to people of, of uh, perhaps of, of my generation that they, they so evoke um, the form of those previous Ladybird books, but their content is just a little bit edgy and that it's that dissonance that's actually quite fun and that's what makes them, that's what makes them really work. Uh, so thanks, that was a really, really, really good example. Yeah, when you say, um the smell of a book as well yeah. what i loved is the little asides and little tips that you put within your book that if you have a book that is second hand which if you know we we talked um about helen hunt's book um a few months back and she was very much about getting a second hand book and the smell of it and people writing notes in it and what that meant 
but in your book you actually say if it's smelly pop it in a in a box with some cat litter and it would take that horrible odor away yeah if you buy a book which has been if you're not a smoker and you buy a book that's been in a smoker smoker's house or if you buy a book that smells a bit musty or something yeah that's a good tip I learned from uh, one of the librarians at the Bodleian in Oxford so in a Tupperware box with a bit of clean cat litter uh, with a lid on about 24 or 48 hours that should get the taste uh, the smell of that away but even nasty not not even necessarily nasty smells but just smells you know the smell of um uh, early books until about 1850 are printed on paper which made is made of cloth like banknote paper used to be so linen paper uh, and then after about 1850, uh, the standard books are, pub are published on wood pulp paper. And those are very different organic materials and they have a different smell and they age differently. As you know, if you look at um, uh, a kind of maybe a 1960s or something penguin paperback, that will have very brown pages. It would have had very white pages. But one of the things that happens over the over time is that 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 goes um, that goes brown. So, yeah, all of those are aspects of the book that I was really um, interested in. Um, and, and I suppose the other angle that maybe we would maybe we'll be able to discuss a bit is wanted to think about why books often feel such special objects or they um, evoke quite strong feelings as objects. And I was prompted to this by seeing on Twitter a man who uh, was commuting, presumably not driving like you, Chris, but uh, was commuting and had cut in half uh, a big book by David Foster Wallace called Infinite Jest in order that he didn't have to lug this, you know, three kilo book back and forth. And, um, you know, this is not a rare book. This is a modern book. He owned it. Um, you could go and buy a replacement in any bookshop. Uh, there are hundreds of thousands of copies of this book in the world. So it's not a rare book. Um, but the, the people who uh, saw, saw this acted as if he had uh, done an injury really to a, to, you know, to, a, to, to a sentient being, to something feeling. The thing I, it most reminded me of was that this may not be a reference that works for people in the States, but in the UK, we probably remember. Do you remember that woman who put the cat in the bin? And then, you know, there was just such an outrage. Who could put a cat in a bin? And there was something similar about that. You know, what kind of a monster cuts a book in half? Um, and there are lots of different ways in which books um, have a sort of special, they operate within a kind of special category. Bookshops work on sale or return which almost no other retail works on. You know, if you if you buy, um, uh, I don't know, scented candles or something from the wholesaler and nobody wants to buy them, you're stuck with them. You know, you've made a mistake as a as a as a shopkeeper. But if you if you take in, let's say, portable magic, although this would never happen and nobody wants to buy it, you can send it back. Uh, you can send it back to the publishers. Um, and there are things like, you know, why don't books carry VAT? Um, so they're like um, crash helmets or they're like medicine. You know, they're they're an essential. But then audiobooks, Chris's audiobook or ebooks, if any of you um, uh, use those, they do carry VAT. So it's not about the content so much, which is the same across those different media. It's about the object. And so one of the things I tried to explore was the way in which books, if you look back through the history of books, um, they really 
they really emerge historically alongside Christianity. And that's, I think, because um, Christianity establishes itself as a religion with quite a lot of scripture uh, that you you want to be able to refer back and forth to. You don't read the scriptures from beginning to end. You want to be able to look at a bit from one of the prophets, maybe, and a bit from the gospel in order to understand. Uh, and only if you've got scrolls, which were the predecessors, you can't do that. You can't look at two parts of a scroll at the same time. You've got to you've got to unroll it, and you can't put your finger in a bit or a little bookmark or something. You it, you can only use it in in sort of one dimension. And I think the, the, the shape of the book came up because Christianity had a, had a use for it. But I think they, one of the consequences of that is that we, you know, our, our first books were sacred. And even though our books mostly now are not sacred or don't contain sacred texts, I kind of felt that maybe the object has retained some of that early sort of reverence that we had. Um, and that that's, you know, that's part of uh, why, why we think of them uh, in a slightly different category from other kinds of objects. It's not shameful, is it, to say you've got more books than you can read? No. Whereas it is shameful, a bit, little bit shameful to say, I've got more handbags than I could ever go out with or more shoes <laughs> or more cars than I could ever drive. You know, you're sort of saying, oh, you know, there's something a bit wrong with me, actually. I'm overcompensating with all these things. But it, with books, we don't tend to think that. And so all these different sort of little, you know, someone said about, um, you know, books, whether you should write in books, you know, some people feel very strongly about that. You shouldn't fold down the corners. You shouldn't highlight. Maybe you can write, but only in pencil. You know, these are objects that have got a sort of reverence to them. And I was really interested to sort of explore that and to hear different people's different people's take on that. Yeah. I know I always consider books as my friends, probably because I had quite a lonely childhood and therefore, you know, books did become my friends. I love the phrase in your book that you call bookhood. Do you want to expand a little bit on what bookhood means and why you want this word to come back into fashion? Yeah, so bookhood isn't a word I invented. It was it was sort of around in the Victorian period, but it's fallen away a bit. And it's a word on exactly the same model as, you know, childhood or widowhood or something. So it's the experience or the existence of being a book. Um, uh, just as childhood is you know, the experience of being a child. And I wanted to think about, you know, I mean, it sounds a bit mad to say, what's it like to be a book? Uh, I don't quite go as far as that. Um, but I wanted to think about the, the sort of all the aspects, all the dimensions of, of, of bookhood, the different senses that books appeal to, um, the different um, aspects of them that we might want to, to think about. And although I do think about their contents, and obviously, as a reader, you know, I'm really, uh, you know, committed to all kinds of different book kinds of literature. I love reading. In this book, I'm a little bit less concerned with the content and a bit more concerned with the form or with how those two or the, how with, the, with how those two interact. I love the way even, I mean, when I work with authors, finding their title of the book is so important. And you said that you got portable magic from a quote by Stephen King. Yeah. So I really recommend, I, I, um, uh, I really recommend Stephen King's memoir 
on writing if you're interested in 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 uh, well how, how a great writer writes but also how we can be better more effective writers I think it, I find it a very um, accessible and a very encouraging book it's very down to earth and it's good about the kind of discipline of writing as well as some of the more um, sort of um, creative aspects of it I suppose um, but quite early on he calls uh, he talks about you know why it's important to write or why books are important and he calls about he, he calls them a uniquely portable magic and that phrase just really really uh, stuck with me and in fact I had and people people have different um, takes on this um, uh, I don't know um, Madeline it was you wasn't it I don't know whether you've got a title for your book yet but I had this title for my book before the book uh, I knew this was somehow what I wanted to organize the book uh, the book around um, and uh, I suppose what what's the Stephen King bit gave me um I, what I didn't want to write was a book which was all about how nice books are even though I believe that they often are I think there are quite a lot of books like that there are quite a lot of books where people talk about the importance to books the, the importance of books in their own lives and they're usually accounts which show their accounts about nice people clever people, engaged people, who've read things, who've had an influence on them. Um, and although uh, I do talk a bit about some of those kind of ideas, I also wanted to suggest that, you know, magic is not always a good thing. It's not just uh, glitter and, you know, unicorns or something. It, it's it's powerful and it can be powerful in, in bad ways. And there are, there are lots of ways in which the book as an object has been misused or used as a, a tool to oppress people. Um, you know, there are lots of, there are lots of aspects of that. And I, I, I didn't want to um, overplay that, but I wanted to talk a bit about it. So for example, I've got a, a chapter on a book, uh, which for me raises really, really, really difficult issues that I don't know, I haven't resolved for myself, which is Hitler's book, Mein Kampf. Um, and I talk about, you know, the problems of uh, the issues that have always been around publishing and translating that book, the big question about who should get the royalties, should there be royalties, should it be banned, uh, how would you present it, is there a responsible way to present it, should you just leave it up to people to access it in their own way, would it be acceptable to have it in a sort of three for two promotion, you know, is it a different kind of book from other from other books and and you know why and and so you know that that was a good interesting example for me of a of of a book which had huge circulation um there are probably more copies of uh, mein kampf in hitler's uh, germany than there are people um and it circulated in there's a prayer book sort of type format, which is given to couples when they get married in the 1930s with a message from Hitler in it. There's a, you know, there's a, it, it, it's absolutely everywhere. And it's the, so it's the symbolic sort of center of that whole ideology. So what do we do with it? You know, um, and I, I wanted some sense, say, some space in my book for, for difficult books too. Yeah, very difficult books to look at. And I have to say the, the um, chapter headings, 
and you know the chapters of your book are quite intriguing with shelfies mentioned and religions of the world and censored books so there's quite a and skin in the game about book binding it is absolutely just full of quite incredible credible things I, I would like to well is there anything else you want to add about your book at this moment Emma or can we go to questions? Let's go members? to questions. Thanks. Thanks, lady. Okay. Um, I think David may have a question regarding selfies, um, which obviously is one of the chapters. And I have asked everyone who, who I've asked all our members to send me their selfies. So, David, do you have one on that or something different? Something different. I, I didn't know I was supposed to be asking a question on selfies. We did talk about shelfies and uh, selfie shelfies and what they were the other day and uh, in the book it talks about Madame de Pompadour and um, Marilyn Monroe which I, which I found was interesting but what I wanted to ask about dust jackets actually because we're, we're talking about the book as a as a physical form and it is the dust jacket part of the book because I've got I've, I've put the dust jacket back on for this purpose but I'm reading it I'm reading it because I think it gets in the way I'm reading it just that it's lovely red um so I, and I love books and I love books as physical objects, but the dust jacket always seems a bit of a, a bit of an add on to me as opposed to it's not it's almost not part of the book. So I don't know what's your feeling about dust jackets and um, is that is the book on fire, I assume, on the on the front of that? And why did you choose that picture? Uh, yeah, but... um, well, the sort of thanks. Thanks, David. Yeah, the general question about uh, dust jackets. Yeah, I think I rather agree. Um, sometimes if I have a hardback with a dust jacket, I feel very worried that I'm going to make the dust jacket scruffy and I take it off like you have taken it off and then put it when I'm reading it and put it back on. And then I think I wonder what this is actually what this is actually for. They're relatively late. They come relatively late in book production. They come um, in the um, beginning of the 19th century and they're associated really with Christmas books, these annuals that I talk about. Um, it's not until about the 1820s that it becomes really fashionable and sort of necessary to buy your friends Christmas presents. Um, and a bit like, a bit like if, you, if you're a cynic, you think Valentine's Day or Father's Day is an invention of Hallmark cards. So this Christmas present industry seemed to be an invention of booksellers actually, because they, they, did, they were trying to push that a book was the perfect Christmas present. And so you get these very decorative and beautiful books emerging through the 1820s and 30s, particularly um, targeted at women. And the dusk jacket develops as part of that as a sort of beautiful add-on in different colours or sometimes even in different fabrics. Uh, and then it sort of comes into mainstream book production. But I agree with you. Um, and one of the questions that the... Um, the library in Oxford has, so the Bodleian Library, um, lady had mentioned this to me and it actually fits in here. The Bodleian Library, which is my, as it were, my local library in the university is what's called a copyright library. So it has the right to, although it doesn't always uh, exercise that right, to call any book to its collections with an ISBN, um, International uh, Standard Book, book Number. Um, and they uh, store their books or they catalogue books with the dust jacket separately. So that red book, the red volume of my book that you show, David, that's how it would, that's how that book would appear in the in the library. Uh, and the dust jacket is taken somewhere else, and there's a kind of dust jacket shelf mark, which geeks in the future will perhaps perhaps look up. But they become they they're completely separated out. 
um, a bit as you're suggesting. I didn't have a huge amount of say in the book design, and I think that's probably right. I think authors probably shouldn't. Um, you know, book design is a specialised um, uh, specialised thing. So I, I liked I liked the. Um, sorry, that's my dog barking. <laughs> Shows it's real. I think we saw him um, open the door earlier as well. Opening the door, fun. yes. Yeah. Mm. Um, Heather, you have a question. Yes, um, I had a, a quite an interesting evening because I do the Instagram and I was gathering all the books that were mentioned within your book um, from my library. But what really stood out was the mention of Mist, the game, which is about books. And I wondered, um, have you played the game? Did you play the ones that came on from there, Riven and, and so on? And uh, how that came about as such? It's a book about, it's a game about books. Yeah, that's interesting. So the game Mist, so I'm not a great gamer. Um, Heather and it sounds as if you probably are more so but uh but somebody told me about it and uh said you you ought to play it and in fact I read quite a lot of stuff about it which sees it sees the game as a sort of symbol in a way of the of the decline of the book in favor of gaming um and because inside the game um you have to uh uh, dis destroy the books to either destroy the books or get captured within the books. That's the, they're, they're the only kind of options. Um, but then one of the things that became interesting to me was because I because I'm not a gamer, I don't have a gaming console. Um, I was trying to play um, uh, an iOS, a kind of Apple, an iPhone version of it, which was very, very buggy and very difficult. Um, uh, so I've got a sense of the game, but I haven't had a very good experience of playing it. And I suppose one of the thing, one of the ways I I reflected on that in the book was to think how remarkably resilient book technology has been. Uh, you know, uh, Saint Cuthbert is buried with a gospel book um, in 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 the in the eleventh century. It looks exactly, uh, you know, it works exactly like portable magic you know if 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 Cuthbert were reading if we gave Cuthbert portable magic he'd know it was a book and he'd know how to how to handle it whereas if we if we gave him mist this game I mean he would be completely bewildered um but but mist has not really lasted even 20 or 25 years because of because of the the, the way that technology works so I was interested in a little, I mean, we talk a lot about the death of the book or the future of the book and whether digital technologies will overtake the book. And obviously, in some ways, they have already. Um, but we've probably all experienced the obsolescence of those forms. And we've probably all got, whether it's cine film from being children or VHS videos that we'd sort of missed the moment or even now DVDs which seemed like the future and are already now the past you know we've got we've got these um we've got these technologies hanging around whereas the book has really resisted that um and been so extraordinarily long long living I did not know about the others Riven what was there was there another title you gave me Riven yeah they've they've done a, a series of books but yeah. now um they've moved into VR as well and the whole concept of the game is to immerse in the book mm. so the book becomes your world mm. 
yeah. um so it's, it's it's a lovely sort of set of whole set of ironies isn't it that it isn't a oh book, yes and yet it's yeah yes. it's yeah i'm yeah. so pleased and no, yet nobody, you're in it <laughs> yeah. nobody has really uh engaged with that part of, of my book before so i'm really interested yeah. to hear what you say and and it gives me a sense that i i could um explore that all that a bit further thank you Right. Now, Emma, your your book is going to feature in an exhibition, or it's going to be a whole exhibition. Tell us more about what exactly that is, when it is, and and how those in the UK can go along and support it. Yeah, great. So the Bodleian Libraries in Oxford, um, ha we have just opened an exhibition which is called Sensational Books sensational books and I'll put the link in the chat in a minute maybe or okay. uh, uh, if somebody else gets there first that will be great so it's a free exhibition in the Bodleian open from sort of 10 till 4 it opened last week and it will run until the very early December 2022 and it's not it, it's it, it's sort of in parallel with with the book the thing about the exhibition was that it was due to be uh on in 2020. Uh, so it's one of those events that has fallen uh, foul of, of COVID. So what's, ha what's happened is that the book and the exhibition have become sort of contemporaneous, which was never the plan. Um, uh, and when I had designed the exhibition, I had had the book in mind. And so I had the same sort of thoughts about, um, uh, about some of the objects. So the exhibition is about books and the senses. And it's about the senses beyond sight. So it's about uh, smell and taste and uh, hearing the sound of books. Um, uh, and it's it's got some fun things in it, like some sort of examples of scratch and sniff technology. Uh, we've got um, something called the, uh, the Bacon Cookbook, which is a scratch and sniff uh, book. It's a bit disappointing, I think. It doesn't smell as much of bacon as I would want it to. But we've got... Um, uh, We've had um, uh, a, a perfume company make the smell, make different smells of books, which you can sort of smell and see and, and with, with atomizers and see what you think. Um, yeah, we've got all kinds of uh, all kinds of bits and pieces in there. So um, it would be very it, it, uh, you're very welcome to come and come and see it. And thanks, David, for putting it in um, in the chat. That's great. So does that include the book made of cheese? It does include the book made of cheese, yeah. So Ben Denzer, who's an American uh, artist, has uh, made a whole series of books which are out of different, um, using uh, different objects as the pages. And I think what I like about these books is they sort of really push us a bit to say, well, is it a book or isn't it a book? So Ben Denzer's book called American Cheese is a little square, yellowy orange book, the colour of that processed dairyly burger cheese. And inside there are 20 pages, each a slice of that cheese in that very, very thin plastic that they're always in with a, I don't know if they've got that sort of dotted line across what to show you how to unwrap them, <laughs> but that's, 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 that's what it is. It doesn't have any writing on them but it turns the pages turn like like a book and it's got a cover and it's got the title and American cheese on the spine so wow. I'm sort of interested obviously it's, it's it's a joke and it's playful and it's fun and it's nice to have a book in a fridge uh in an exhibition we have to buy the fridge specially um but it's also sort of interesting in thinking uh is a 
is there a book without any content or what would the what is the content of this book is this a book about cheese in some way because it's made of cheese or what what is it uh so it's it's a playful and kind of fun fun thing and in in my book in portable magic it's in a chapter called what is a book where i sort of try and go through um sort of technical and legal definitions but also more um some of the ways sort of artists have have have, have played with books um, and and sort of made them into objects in their own right in different ways. So to paraphrase Shakespeare, you could say, "Is this a book I see before?" <laughs> yeah, exactly. Is this a book of cheese? Yeah. Okay. Are there any other questions from from members? Unmute yourself and ask it. Uh, Abby, you're not. You're still muted. I was pressing the space bar, but I was just saying Chris, Sissons, Carol and Diana have both all got their hands up, ask, want to ask questions. Okay, so Diana, would you like to go first? Well, actually, Chris should be first because he's first in the list. <laughs> it's Chris, then Carol, then me. I don't mind, just someone go. <laughs> Okay, well, uh, yeah, um, just uh, three quick points. First of all, um, really more of a comment. Um, you mentioned uh, religious books, and uh, uh, there's some chapters in Dermot McCulloch's History of Christianity about the Church of the East, uh, and a lot there about libraries and the way that libraries were places where people of different faiths met and interacted and shared ideas and theology. Um, because and, and very often, you know, the Bible was actually 60 odd books. Uh, you had the Quran, but then all the sayings of the prophet and so on. Uh, you got the Midrash in uh, Judaism and then various books in Hinduism and Buddhism. So there was a whole lot of stuff. Uh, and lots of other books that sort of hovered around them. And I think uh, I'd very much like to uh, find out if anybody's written a history of the libraries of the world, and if not, whether we could perhaps persuade somebody uh, in one of the big universities to, uh, to write it. And uh, so that's the first point. The other two are just uh, observations of omissions from Portable Magic. Uh, number one, um, I did enjoy the chapter on Mein Kampf, uh, but it was a bit before my time and uh, obviously a bit before your time as well. But the, the obvious example in my time was Satanic Verses, and there's absolutely nothing in the book about Satanic Verses. And uh, I was just wondering whether that was a deliberate omission or whether you just didn't think of it. Uh, and the other omission uh, that I really missed from the book is that there are no illustrations it was a book, in my view, crying out for some coloured plates with photographs of, uh, I can't remember them all now, the, the, the books from Islington Library, uh, uh, maybe some uh, scrolls and early codexes, um, maybe even books found in human skin. You know, there, there are all, quite a few examples were quite visual, and I thought some illustrations would have been useful. So those are my comments. Emma, would you like to respond? Just to let you know, when Chris writes his own book, you can ask him really awkward questions at some point. Then. No, I'm delighted. To have, I've, I've put, put in the chat, Chris, about um, someone who's written a big book about the history of libraries, which it sounds like you might 
you, you, you're already really, really interested in. So Andrew Pettigree, um, uh, I, I think would be would be the person to go for there. I didn't talk about um, I didn't talk about satanic verses because it didn't seem to me to add anything different to the other examples I had of book burning. Uh, it, it's not a it's not an act of censorship which is more particularly focused on the book as an object than on the book as content. So, I, I mean, I, I didn't. Uh, uh, you're absolutely right that it's more my um, it, it's more my era. Um, it's a different um, yeah different. It, just, it it didn't it didn't feel like the best example, I suppose. Um, you know, and I'm I'm writing a book about. 2000 years of, of, of history. So I'm absolutely, um, yeah, I've absolutely left things out and, and, and I've not known about things. But Satanic Verses is something that I did know about um, just because when I was an undergraduate, um, I went to Blackwell's Bookshop, which, is a, um, which had a very good programme, very slightly before this became very standard or it hadn't seemed very standard to me of authors coming to write to talk about their work and I went to the mall even though I didn't really know who the authors were um, and Salman Rushdie was one of them and there were police outside Blackwell's just two or three um, and we said oh you know what why I hadn't heard anything there, there was no then no factor or no and I, said, well, I wonder what they're doing here and we were talking to them and they said oh we're just making sure there's no trouble um, and there was no trouble. There was no, there was nobody, and still no sense. I was very, very unclear what this trouble might be. Uh, it didn't seem clear from what Rushdie said about the book. So yeah, I mean, it's absolutely shaped my, um, my, my, my adult life, and it's interesting to see the um, uh, reflections on it when uh, Rushdie was uh, just um, knighted or whatever he was. Um, there's been quite a lot about it, hasn't there, in the papers over the last few days? So yeah, thanks, Chris. Um, and about illustrations, yeah, and, and you know that makes my point. It would have been a different book, wouldn't it? And and uh, you know the form of a an illustrated book. Uh, illustrated books have a different audience from books which are all words. Um, they appeal to something different. Um, that wasn't exactly the book that I set out to write. It may be the book I ended up writing, and that may have been a book which would have been better with illustrations. Would that um, be your choice, Emma, or would it be in the publisher's choice? Um, I never said that I wanted illustrations. Um, I didn't imagine particularly wanting illustrations. Uh, as I say, by the time by the time I had written the book, perhaps it was a book that uh, I, I don't disagree with Chris actually that 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 it would have been great to have some some of the illustration. Yeah. Mm. Well, revised copy already. Yeah, second edition. Let's do that. <laughs> Carol, would you like to ask your question? Yes, Emma, I wondered who you saw as the audience for this book and to what extent it was written for a particular audience. Um, yeah, thanks, Carol. Um, I think I thought of this... Um, I think I thought of this as a, as a book for people like you who are seriously bothered about books and think about them. Um, uh, people who uh, are members of libraries, people who, you know, care about whether uh, or hang about secondhand bookshops or uh, I, th I thought of it for, the, for those uh, kinds of people. And it's been a book, so it's the second book I have written for a more, uh, with a trade publisher for a wider readership. So I've written quite a lot of academic books, which have primarily a sort of academic or a student readership. And 
I think this book, uh, this book is a book that my brother-in-law, who's an engineer, uh, he said, I didn't really like the Shakespeare book. We bought it, but we didn't like, I didn't, I didn't really read it because I'm not very interested in Shakespeare, but actually this was more interesting to him. Uh, I think because it's, uh, because it's got lots of different bits in it. So I hoped that it would be a book that, uh, as as Lady said at the beginning, you could dip in and out of, and there might be bits that you found boring, but that you would just skip over those, and there might be bits that were just a bit more interesting. Um, yeah, I, well, I, I just I love your asides in them, like, thank you for carrying on reading this bit. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that bit where you come into your book as well. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Diana. I am. Um, I, I, uh, I was very interested in the fact that you picked up on Silent Spring as being a very influential book. Certainly when I read it as a teenager, it changed my life and I was very pleased to see that in there. Um, along with The Crucified City by Peter Van Greenaway, which was the effects of um, nuclear yes. um, devastation. They've had very, very strong effects on me as a teenager and has affected the whole of my life since really. Um, first half of my life was really um, dominated by the Cold War and the threat of nuclear war. Mm. So, That's so interesting because I wonder if for, for me the equivalent was um, Raymond Briggs's book When the Wind Blows, um, which was uh, the kind of 80s version of that awful chilling uh, nuclear winter kind of um, uh, which was a sort of which is a, which is a really interesting example because it's a a comic book which is distinctly un uncomic I mean yes. it's, it's one of the ways that graphic an early example of the ways graphic fiction um has really pushed into difficult 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 areas um yeah thanks for what you said about Silent Spring I tried to use that as a book where uh, in a way you could you you could trace through different editions how it was reaching a wider market a wider market a wider, what a wider readership so it picks up in a way on on, on Carol's question before um, and one one moment in that history of Silent Spring, which is, you know, that environmental manifesto, which comes out as a quite a small, uh, small small range, quite a niche book actually for a, a, a and 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 then quite quickly becomes a, a sort of phenomenon. I talked about the um, what in a, in America, um, to, um, people Americans on the, this call will recognise is the Book of the Month Club, and the role of popular book clubs in democratizing reading and democratizing books in all kinds of ways. Um, I grew up with uh, some of the British versions of that, that you could get sort of um, hardback reference books and uh, and things if on, on a sort of mouthwatering offer. There was on the back of the Sunday supplements saying, you know, you can get, uh, I remember my mother getting for me when I went to university, um, a, a, a huge sort of, uh, sort of door, doorstep of a book, which was the Oxford English Dictionary, all reduced into, into tiny things and it had a magnifying glass. So you could look up, you know, what was like 20 volumes all in one bought from a book club. So I was really interested in those uh, moments where the format of, of the book uh, just uh, speaks to a much wider audience. Um, and I thought about, you know, do you remember the novelist Jonathan Franzen said he didn't want to be on Oprah's book club uh, because he didn't want the, the, the O, which was her logo, he didn't want that on his book. Um, 
and, and there's still that sense perhaps that it, for, for some people that 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 to be a to be in a book club um to be a book club edition or to be that sort of mass market edition is a bit is a bit lowbrow and um I was interested in the in the assumptions uh, there so yeah thanks for picking that out I think it's a really interesting book and then I suppose I take it to the point so um um I guess Rachel Carson's book has now become a sort of has now become a classic, and I think about uh, the Library of America series, which is a, a modern edition which I I love. I think they're very very beautiful books, um, hardback books with a ribbon. And uh, but I was a bit worried to see that maybe if you if you take a book like Silent Spring and put it into a classic format, have you stopped it from being the kind of urgent? Uh, effective book that you that, that that you read Diana um you know you've you've sort of you've slightly put it at one remove you know a, a classic book doesn't tend to um incite us to march on the streets you know it's it it, it, it suggests a different more timeless kind of relation to it rather than something more urgent and I think we could read that in the form thank you I suppose I, I read it when it was fairly new <laughs> Yeah. So it was quite immediate for me. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that was, that's really important. That's what that book is about and still needs to be. So in some ways, the classic, uh, even though it's a beautiful object, I felt a bit worried about what the, what that classic format had done to the message of the book. Yeah. Bruce, your your question. I think this might well be the last question. Thank you. Yeah, I, I'm intrigued by the, the, the changing form of literature that you're talking about and how uh, we've gone from scrolls to books, and 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 I'm just sort of looking at my desk, and I've got I've got devices like this, handle handheld device that's from years ago, the sort of Scion organizer, and 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 now we've got sort of the the Kindle, which I have to say, surrounded by technology, I think this is a very poor little device. I think it's uh, I think it's very weak in terms of technology, but it is what it is, sort of thing, as they say. Um, but I'm trying to sort of change the paradigm of not taking literature out of books and putting it into technology, but putting technology into books to make the book more multidimensional, if you like. So I've written a book that is packed full of QR codes. So if I if I do that, oh, for, yeah, I can see ladies giving her a copy of the book as well. So yeah, so we've got, we've got QR codes uh, on the back and throughout the book, which leads you through to animations, music, um, sort of poetry and things like that that enhance the book and work better with the book in your hand. Uh, and I was wondering, uh, have you come across much use of QR codes in fiction? I've seen them in children's books and things like that, but so in terms of fiction, have you come across them? Yeah, no, hardly, I can't think, I can't think I have at all, really. Uh, but I think that's such an interesting, I think that's such an interesting set of innovations. Um, it flips the model for a while i think we thought ebooks were going to be those kind of hypermedia multimedia kinds of uh phenomena and in fact uh, it's interesting that you're not so impressed by kindle and and one of the things i uh i write a bit about is how how book like kindle actually is uh it, it it's about the size of a book uh it, you, you know you read it in a book form i know you can turn it but you read it in a book format the first edition, the first generation Kindle, which one of which we've got in the Sensational Books exhibition is actually thicker along the left hand uh, 
uh, side than 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 the right to signal the kind of spine of a book. You know, it it waits in the hand. So these are these are technologies which aren't really disrupting the book all that much because they're very like a book and they tend to convey the same content as a book. We did we haven't gone with. Um, uh, ebooks or multimedia versions of books which do all kinds of different things so I think what you're doing which is to enhance the printed book to have to go to it from that direction rather than the other one is is a really is is really innovative and interesting and as you say I've seen little bits of something similar even before digital uh you know children's books where you would throw a dice to decide which which chapter you would read next or how the adventure would unroll. So, so, so the book is, is supplemented by something else. Um, but no, I haven't, I haven't seen that in fiction really at all. Is your book fiction? It is, yeah, science fiction. Yeah. So yeah. it's particularly enhanced by yeah. Um, yeah, slightly surreal material. So. Yeah, absolutely, how interesting. Well, I'm going to have to draw this interview to a close. I wanted to ask you a lot more about the Bodleian Library, but maybe that's a, a meeting for another time. Um, I would like to finish with your quote from Walter Benjamin. Can you remember it? Yeah, it's a bit it's a bit of a downer to end with, isn't it? Isn't it, ladies? So maybe 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 we won't end with that. Maybe we won't end with that quotation. The 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 um. Uh, yeah, maybe, I, I think we shouldn't end with that because I think it's too it's too much of a downer. So maybe we need a more cheerful quotation uh, about uh, uh, about books. Um, Do you have one that comes to mind? No, but I'm thinking about. Um, uh, do you know the acronym Babel uh, B A B E L, uh, which I've just heard recently, which is books acquired beyond expected lifetime and so it's about having more books if than you could ever read you know how it, you know how an, a sort of old dvd box set says this is you know 320 minutes or something it's as if you looked at your bookshelves and, and they said to you this is 78 years, three months and two days, you know, worth of reading. So beyond your expected lifetime. Um, uh, but I, I love that sense. I'm sorry we didn't get more chance to talk about other people's books and their and, and their sort of their, their, their shelfies. But that sense of being surrounded by by books, I find a very, very uh, comforting one, even if I'm not going to read them all again. Uh, I think that's one of the um, paradoxes maybe of having books. And books are not only quote. owned to be read. You're absolutely right. Sorry, I have to interrupt you. I read a quote recently, and I can't remember who it's by. It says, um, it, to, to, if a man reads a book, reads books, he lives a thousand lives. If no one reads it, if a man doesn't read a book, he only lives one life. And I mm -hmm. really like that, because you do. You, you, ex you explore different worlds and different things. Yeah, completely. But I can't, I can't remember who said that. Yeah, thanks, Deborah. That's great. There's one. Uh, Cesarol, is that Abbey Rose? I pronounced that correctly or not? Am I giving everybody a good laugh? Um, a Room Without Books. It's just moved up. A Room Without Books is like a body without a soul. Mm. Cicero. <laughs> mm. Cicero. Right, thank you. Right, that, that is super. Thank you. Thanks ever so much. Thank you, everyone. Emma, it's been an absolute delight. It's been a real um, pleasure to be with you. Thank you. And Thanks we'll for inviting be talking me. Talking more about your book next month as well.
Thank well, you. Well, if there are questions that are outstanding after that, do uh, do forward them to me. It would be lovely to hear that. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Hi, thank you for listening to the Lady AD Show podcast. Come back, subscribe, and we'll do this all over again. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.